Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Podcast. In this episode, I am joined again by Dr. Dakota Stroll, and he is joining me to discuss Olympic lifts. So you're looking at things like cleans and clean variations, overhead squats, snatches, that sort of thing. Uh, So this is a great episode talking about an area that I myself am no expert in, but Dakota has been doing these sort of things, coaching these sort of things for years and years. So he is a great resource. Really excited to bring you this conversation we had. Uh, Thanks again, as always, for listening and hope you enjoy the show. So if you didn't know, I'm pretty bad when it comes to things like Olympic lifting. Like if you need help with your clean or your overhead squat or your snatch, and I mean that only in the lifting aspect, um, I am not the person that you want to go to. I'm not your Olympic lifting specialist. However, I'm joined today by Dr. Dakota Stroll, who has been doing them for years. So, Dakota, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Dan. I'm excited to be talking to you about Olympic lifting. Hopefully, you get to shed some light on a subject that maybe a lot of your listeners either know a little bit about or don't know anything about and want to start to understand, especially if they're in the rehab profession and they're seeing people that want to partake in these type of activities. Right, because they are very demanding activities. I mean, you need full body mobility, strength, power, explosiveness, um, the list goes on. So when it comes to Olympic lifts and that sort of thing, what got you into these sort of exercises, so to speak? I mean, one word, CrossFit, that's what I've been doing for the past probably six, seven years, I would guess about right about now. Uh, And really, that's what got me into it. And um, I, I got into it when I started to get into strength and conditioning and like more sports specific, which... I think the last few years, the Olympic lifts have gained a little bit of traction. You know, definitely in the football realm, especially the football realm was, man, your big three it was bench, deadlift, and squat. Now you see a lot of programs actually getting away from maybe just hitting those all the time, and they're incorporating some cleans because they know the athletic performance that those movements can build in terms of the other things. They don't just build strength, but they build power and explosiveness, right? Those type one muscle fibers where you're really exploding through. So it's really seeing a lot of difference in those. And that's what really got me into it. it was the, And there's a big portion of that into uh, CrossFit. CrossFit has been one of the best brand ambassadors for Olympic lifting. They really brought it to the forefront where they say, we're not going to be afraid of the barbell, right? There's this huge population that will go to the dumbbell rack. Maybe if they are brave enough, if they're willing to go away from equipment and they may stay on the equipment, right? Just the machines, do like some cable curls, whatnot. But a lot of people get hesitant to grab the barbell. So I really love that CrossFit has tried to be uh, shedding some light on just another way to improve your overall fitness. Right. And, you know, like you're alluding to there, it's not just one aspect of fitness that you're improving. You're literally improving all components of fitness simultaneously with these style uh, workouts. And um, I think everyone, or hopefully everyone that's listening has done at least one wad in their life. Maybe it's like a Murph challenge or 21 guns or that sort of thing. But I mean, that's the kind of thing we're referring to here is, you know, Mm -hmm. six, seven workouts like that every day of your week. Yep. Yeah. And and I would say that the the coolest thing about 
Olympic lifting and really what CrossFit has tried to do in terms of the fitness realm, especially with Olympic lifting is they tried to highlight all modes of fitness. So they have what they consider as their 10 general physical skills, and they include cardiovascular and respiratory endurance, stamina, strength, flexibility, power, speed, coordination, agility, balance, and accuracy. So a lot to kind of go over there, but in terms of when you're looking at, we're going to talk about a little bit deeper uh, about just the movement requirements later, but when you're talking about a movement that is supposed to be, again, about this power and speed, but yet there's a lot of coordination because you're taking a bar from basically a deadlift position, at least if you're doing the clean, taking a bar from a deadlift position and going into a front squat. So there's a moment in time where your body is moving outside of that bar, right? So that bar is moving, but your body is moving around it. So you're moving around this external object. That's part of coordination. Yet there's a balance, right? Once you catch the bar, if you're off balance, you might either throw the bar one way and you're going to be going the other way. There's a lot of videos you can find online, right? Fail videos where a guy <laughs> catches a clean, they go back there, back hits the wall, right? And they get shot out like a slingshot, right? So there's all of these things, which is why I think in terms of what got me excited to do Olympic lifting is because it's so challenging and requires all this. It's not, you know, a squat looks easy compared to a clean. And I certainly will be the first one to say a squat is not easy. A squat is very difficult. It's one of the most challenging things you can do for your body, but yet people think it's easy and it's not. So if people have an appreciation for how difficult a squat, even a body weight squat can be, especially if you don't have the correct mobility and stability that's required, people can really appreciate how difficult and how physically demanding and how many forms of fitness you can put into your body if you start to practice Olympic lifting. Right. <clears throat> now, you're, uh, you said that you've been doing this for six, seven years. Obviously, right now, you're 24, 25 years old. So there's probably a little bit of a training background before then. Uh, what did that look like? Did you have something or someone kind of coaching you, setting you up with like a foundation for Olympic lifts or? Yeah, there was a little bit of a foundation there. I'll say I started probably lifting when I was back in, in early high school. Uh, I played soccer and basketball. So we mm -hmm. would do some just normal, like kind of strength and conditioning stuff, you know, maybe some more sports specific stuff in terms of like agility drills. So a lot of, you know, body weight stuff, but yet focused on, um, uh, form with cutting and just kind of moving in terms of sports specific training, uh, but never really a whole lot of Olympic lifting in terms of like, at least at that age. Um, and then when I started to get into building my body up and getting strong, I was, it's funny, like I loved listening to your podcast with Eric that you just had on shout out Eric Kaplan. He was <laughs> awesome on two different podcasts. Love those podcasts, both of them. Uh, good guy. And uh, I was a big you know, not meathead, but that's what I like like doing. Because right, that when you're have this little like smaller, immature body, you're in high school. Like I wasn't naturally, I was never a big guy. I'm only like five six, five seven, so I'm not big whatsoever. I was like, oh, well, I want to get big, right? It's like you see these scrying little arms, so you're hitting back and buys. That's what I was into, back and buys. Uh, you know, uh, chest and tries, and just doing a leg day, right? So it's like you're murdering yourself, you're doing like these things. Maybe you're doing like a push-pull segment like that, but nothing really too crazy about the training, right? Just going for straight hypertrophy, trying to get big, you know, just eating a little bit more every day, especially at that age where it's, it should be pretty easy to get 
get a little bit bigger because of all the the testosterone that's in you at that age and the free HGH, you know, you're growing. That's like the prime spot for a male in puberty is like 15 to 17. It's just like doesn't get – shouldn't get any easier to gain weight in that aspect and get bigger. So that's what I was into. And then uh, as I started to get out of that, I started to coach and do a little bit of coaching, thankfully, because uh, the owner that uh, is the owner of the gym that I currently work at yet a few days a week, she gave me the opportunity to train underneath her and learn about sports and conditioning. And then she was the one that really introduced me into cleans. Uh, started out with like some more likely like kettlebells and stuff or mm-hmm. dumbbells, just working the movement <clears throat> pattern itself, transitioning to a barbell. And she sent me a video actually the other day. It's like, it was, I mean, the gym looks different too. So it's like funny to see the gym change, but then my body physically changed. It's like, I was doing like 95 pound, like hang clean, which looked super hard <laughs> and now i'd be like in a crossfit workout i could cycle that thing for like 15 20 reps so it's just like crazy to see this difference and how you know you take this one movement that was super super hard and now just keep working out and grinding seeing this this huge and change and, and improvement that's a perfect analogy for life and uh, kind of goes with that motivational podcast we just did earlier too um you know you find something that's worth your time that you want to tackle and you put the time and effort and energy into it, and what was once hard becomes very easy. Now, there's a lot of people listening, I'm sure, that are currently thinking, okay, I've committed, I've already bought in, I want to get better at the clean, the overhead squat, whatever it is. So from a mobility standpoint, because, you know, for the most part, we're still in a pandemic, people are sedentary in America to begin with, a lot of tight muscles, tight joints, things just don't usually move like they should. So what areas should people work on from a mobility standpoint if they want to get into uh, Olympic lifting and uh, Olympic exercises? So I would say the number one thing that I find to be faulty in most people is definitely a lack of ankle dorsiflexion because Mm -hmm. I know you've talked about and have had um, videos on your social media platforms uh, about squatting, right, or box squatting, right? If you're limiting your amount of depth that you're going down, just naturally you're not going to need as much dorsiflexion. Well, to catch a really – like a light clean, Mm -hmm. you might not need a lot of dorsiflexion because you might not be hitting the deepest part of your squat. But if you go through – scroll through like hook grip, which is a, like an Olympic lifting platform, uh, social media on Instagram, and you watch some of like the most elite Olympic lifters, they are literally going ass to grass. I mean, there are times where they're catching a snatch or clean, and they're about one inch of their butt from the ground. I mean, they're looking like a toddler squatting, but they got 350, 400 pounds almost in the front rack position or overhead and making it look effortless. But it's because they have all this mobility, right? And I think the biggest thing is ankle dorsiflexion. As you see people, if we're walking with shoes, right, that have some type of, of heel lift, so like a, a, a drop from back to front, they're getting a tight calf all day. And I'm not just talking about ladies here. Of course, like if ladies wearing heels all the time, I mean, if they're going to even have a harder time with it because they're in this plantar flex position all day, especially if they're walking on their feet a lot. And then they go to try to get this deep squat. You're going to see the tightest, tightest heel cords. It's funny. I just had a patient the other day in my clinic and I was stretching out her legs and then I was like looking at her foot and I said, and I knew she was a lawyer. And I said, you wore heels your whole life, didn't you? 
And she's like, yeah, I wore them for like 40 years. She's like, how do you know? I said, you have the tightest calves I've ever, t- I like, <laughs> I wasn't even trying to really stretch her calf at the time. Cause that's not really what she's coming in for. But I'm like, these things are tight. I was like, and I just told her, I was like, this really isn't maybe related hundred percent to what you're going on. But I was like, you need to work on this because your calves are super, super tight. So I would say that's the biggest one overall. And the second thing is people just need to be able to get into a deep hip flexion, which again, like you might have to try to tailor out once you work on that, that heel cord mobility, that dorsiflexion mobility, whether that be with like a banded dorsiflexion stretch, like a mobilization with uh, movement kind of accessory uh, type of stretch that you would do there. Really, then you have to see your requirements for getting down into just really just a deep squat, which could be as simple as, you know, literally holding on to like the side of your couch and just trying to get into a deep squat, right? Trying to get below parallel. I mean, that's the biggest thing with Olympic lifting is you got to get low, especially if you're going to catch a heavy clean that gets to this max weight that really you're not sure if you're going to be getting it. So no, that, uh, that makes sense. And, uh, that's an interesting comment on the shoes and the footwear tightening down the, uh, calves and just that whole region in general. Now, I'm sure you've noticed a lot of people use these uh, slant boards for squats or they'll elevate the, their uh, heels with a weight plate. You know, if they don't have the dorsiflexion mobility to do something like a squat, they'll just, you know, adapt to give themselves the mobility to do it. Now, would something like that contribute to tightening down the calves similar to the shoes? Because instead of correcting the problem, you're finding a sort of uh, crutch kind of solution to get around it, so to speak. Oh, totally. If you want to get into Olympic lifting and you're primarily doing your squatting, whether, you know, no matter what type of squatting it is, no matter if it's a bodyweight squat, you're having to do your heels elevated, goblet squat, you know, a barbell back squat, a box squat, whatever you're doing, that's going to be showing up kind of a glaring kind of red flag, like, hey, like this is not going to go over well and i'll say the, the biggest thing to really just work on it is to do it it sounds simple but i love i just got done uh like a month or two ago reading uh kelly Surratt's becoming a supple leopard mm-hmm. just looking at like different mobility stuff and if anybody wants to really learn about mobility especially because he has a crossfit olympic lifting background that is the most essential book at least in my early career that I've found to really help you kind of understand mobility requirements throughout the body in certain positions. Cause he does a great job with pictures and different mobilizations and talking about how these relate to uh, biomechanics and human performance. So one of his things that you can find like some old videos that he's done on YouTube is can someone sit in a squat for 10 minutes a day, right? A deep below parallel squat. I mean, I remember when I first started doing that, it's improved my squat tremendously because if you can't even get comfortable in a bodyweight squat, imagine what it's going to be like, again, doing it with an external object around you. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes a, a light goblet squat can also help that position as well because of the way that the weight will balance out your body and your position. So you're maybe holding like a 15, 20 pound dumbbell or kettlebell or something like that, something that's light enough where it doesn't feel like it's super taxing, but it'll help you maintain good position and get down there. Cause what I find is if I try to stretch my calf with like a normal calf stretch, like a standing calf stretch, like a runner lunge or something like that, my calves get loose, but that doesn't help me specifically get a less tight calf for a squat. And personally, the reason why I think that is because people forget that your calf is made of two muscles. It's your gastrocnemius and your soleus. So you get down in this deep squat and your knee has max knee flexion. Your gastroc already 
probably has, you've already blown through it. You don't even have to worry about it because your knee's flexed. So the only other muscle that really can be limiting is that one joint muscle, the soleus. So what I love to do is I'll get down on my clean days or even snatching or even just squatting now anymore is I'll get in the deep squat. And then what I'll do is I'll be flat footed bilaterally, but then I'll shift my weight and put my weight more on one side and really get my knee over my toe on that side and really just get a huge dorsiflexion stretch and really just try to get a, a big soleus stretch. feels great. I'll hang out there for maybe 15, 20, 30 seconds, back off, sit in that squat again, go to the other side, do that a few times. By the time I'm done with that, I've sat in that squat for maybe two minutes. doesn't feel like that long because I've been able to shift my weight. You know, we're not just like statically in one position. I got great ankle mobility. My hips have loosened up. And I'm ready to go. I got position work in. It's just like the best thing for you. Right. So kind of sitting in that deep squat position, matching the adaptation you want to the imposed demand that the exercise is going to place. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, now with that, are there any other kind of movements or mobility? Um, I guess I'll use the term money moves that um, people should really look at or kind of spend more of their time on for these kind of exercises? Yeah, I would definitely say two that are the biggest ones. And one that's the most challenging, I'll talk about that one first, will be the pistol squat. So in terms of, if anybody's not familiar with a pistol squat, what that is, is just a one-legged squat. Mm -hmm. So again, if you're having trouble with a two-legged squat, I don't suggest going right to the pistol squat. But if you feel like you're pretty confident with a bilateral squat, definitely try because what, the difference is definitely going to be is that with that pistol squat, you need way more dorsiflexion. I mean, it's just going to come out. If, if you're lacking dorsiflexion, your heels going to come up right away. I mean, it's just, there's no other way to go around it. Cause I know personally for me, what I've been working on right now a little bit has been pistol squatting more because of, I think a stability issue for myself. Um, I've been elevating the heel a little bit, uh, less because I know I can get into a deep overhead squat. So I know it's more of just that single leg stability, just imbalances right to left side. But that is going to show you all you need to see because that bottom position of that pistol squat is exactly what it's going to look like. Even though it's one leg, it's going to exactly what it's going to look like with two legs when you're in that deep overhead squat. So that would be one. And the other one is definitely a Turkish getup. And the reason why the Turkish getup is so unique is because it combines a little bit of all of these. So the first thing it's going to require is just a lot of overhead stability, right? There's a lot of time under tension with that kettlebell up overhead. So from that starting position, you're getting up, really just getting the hips up and trying to get one leg underneath you. You're in this split position, which is already going to sort of mimic um, when you're in that lunge position. It's going to mimic the uh, finish position for your split jerk. So it's going to be this thoracic extension arm elevated into full overhead flexion and then this split position so you're looking at this body really this core elongation position mm -hmm. you're standing up again maintaining this so a lot of time under tension in these positions which snatches basically similar where you take the bar you get into the overhead squat but now you're if you caught that off balance right we talked about balance before if you caught off balance but you're able to stabilize your body around the bar you're sitting in that overhead squat you've stabilized there might be a second at least or two or three or four that you have to sit with that bar underneath till you feel ready and comfortable to stand up so that's why i think the turkish getup can be really really important because you're just getting a little bit of all of these right that makes sense and um you know with that too going back to that mobility piece a little bit there a lot of people when it comes to reaching overhead um, I know I personally have extremely tight lats and when it comes time to do thoracic extension, especially with like an overhead press, 
you know, we've really got to work at it to get that mobility there. And, you know, ultimately, if you can't even do a standing shoulder press, then, you know, you might want to work on that first before progressing to something like a uh, overhead squat or snatch or a clean and jerk or clean and press. Totally. And, and I would say another thing in terms of overhead positioning, other than that thoracic extension and the lap mobility would be shoulder internal rotation. So you'll see a lot of people that they, if you sit all day with these rounded shoulder position, all you're doing is tighten up the posterior part of the shoulder. So lacking a little bit of that internal rotation, even though we want our shoulder to get into this external rotation, you might see this huge deficit because you're having a joint mobility restriction. So you might think, oh, I got great external rotation, but looking back at what the joint's doing might point a different paint a different picture so that's something else that you might want to clean up too or that a person that's wanting to do overhead stuff will want to clean up i know uh kelly strad will really talk about a lot of at least for overhead positions can be coming down to three things will be posterior capsule mobility overhead lap mobility and thoracic extension those three are basically the big three for overhead movements right and um i like how you brought in the joint capsule and joint component too um, just as kind of like a little motivation for anyone who's, you know, just kind of like, okay, I'm just going to go in and I'll I'll figure out the mobility piece later. Um, because, you know, if you listen to the episode with Eric and I from a couple of weeks ago, uh, you'll realize I was probably that guy in high school that would just kind of go at things without having the proper form and that sort of thing. We know now, at least we, because you know, physical therapy, that sort of thing, that whenever you're loading uh, tissues in ways they're not supposed to be loaded and they're moving in ways they're not supposed to be moving, bad things happen. And in your joint, that tends to occur via cartilage breakdown. So you can literally destroy the articular cartilage that lines your joint surfaces. And if you're going to do one of these lifts with three, 400 pounds, say you've got three, 400 pounds in that deep squat position, whether it's overhead or, you know, front rack or whatever, if you don't have the hip mobility to get into that position and you're shifted one way, rotated more one way than the other, that weight is going directly into one joint. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if in 10, 15 years time, you have a lot of issues with that joint as a result. So I know these mobility things especially can be kind of boring for people sometimes, but these are crucial to doing these exercises. Dude, it's funny. I was, so you'll get a kick out of this story. So uh, I've, I know um, we know how important mobility stuff is. I've had, oh gosh, five, six ankle sprains on the same ankle. And you and I know the statistics, right? The number one risk for an injury is prior injury, right? It's mm -hmm. like, if you've hurt your back before, it's like the number one risk for hurting your back again is because you've had this prior history. So uh, I've had tons of ankle sprains, like I said before, a soccer player in high school, basketball, have come down on guys' feet from layups. You know, in soccer, it's really easy to turn your ankle. It's just this, the way that the cleats are designed, just the way that you're moving a lot of lateral movement, it just puts you predisposed at this. I know that I naturally just have a flatter foot. Like, that's just what I was born with just because uh, uh, I actually have what's called accessory navicular syndrome. So it's where I was born with um, – it actually starts off as a piece of cartilage, and then as you get older, it ossifies into a bone and kind of lies 
right where my posterior tibialis tendon is. So it gives me mm. that flat foot because of the longitudinal arch is kind of sunk down. And <clears> as we know in the research, posterior tibialis has a lot to do with your ankle stability uh, specifically. So I've had tons and tons of ankle sprains. Well, uh, I didn't really think much of it. You know, again, like I've had PT treatment, but I definitely didn't kick up with whatever exercises I probably was supposed to be doing. Uh, silly me, you know. Uh, <laughs> and when then when you try to go into these deep squats, for I, I'll tell you what, man, for at least almost a year and a half, I was getting hip pain. I was like, why the hell do I have hip pain? I was like, I didn't do anything to my hip. I've never hurt my hip. But you know what it was? I worked on my ankle mobility, my ankle stability. I built up my intrinsic foot strength and... I'll tell you what, my hip pain started to go away. I started to actually use muscles the way that they were designed. I was putting my body in a better biomechanical position because I wasn't relying on my hip. Then I just finished a squat cycle about eh, a few months ago, and I was my hip's been feeling okay. But because I wasn't taking care of my knees properly, again, on the same side. So I had right ankle sprains, the hip problem. That's been good. I started to get like a little bit of a quad tendonitis. I mean, I definitely – cleaned it up really easy with a lot of single leg mobility, uh, mobility and stability stuff. Dude, I'll tell you what, there's a huge difference. If you don't focus on these imbalances, you're just going to be setting yourself for destruction later on down the road, just like you said. Exactly. And the thing is, it's not just mobility that we have to concern ourselves with is sometimes one side can be stronger than the other, or sometimes a whole muscle group can be weaker. So, you know, you said you played soccer, I played soccer too in high school, and you know that the leg you kick with predominantly is a lot different than your non-dominant leg. In baseball, you know the arm that you're throwing with, especially if you're a pitcher, is going to be a ton different than the arm that you have your glove on. So, with that in mind, what are some of the common muscle groups or just body regions, so to speak, that we really need to focus on strengthening if we want to do Olympic lifting? I would say the number one that would need to be worked on is our core. So like I kind of said earlier, if you haven't listened to your podcast with Eric, you need to definitely go check that out because that is the foundation to everything. If you do not have a strong core starting from proper transversus abdominis activation with multifidus stability, for the lumbar spine, you are just going to be setting yourself out for destruction. Because again, like these, this is important with even maintaining this proper bracing, which again, it, it, not just on your podcast, talk about it, but again, Kelly Surratt goes into great, great detail about the importance of core stability and what that looks like, making sure you're not in a, in a big posterior pelvic tilt or anterior pelvic tilt. You don't want to leave yourself in this extreme extension, putting you possibly at a risk for spondylolisthesis, right? You load your back up so much, you don't want to get any lumbar fracture because you're in this super extended position because your core isn't strong, right? You're not training this. So that's what I would say would be the number one thing to work on. And the second, which again, we start to consider now as research has developed and gotten better over time is our glutes are really part of this core position. So think about posterior chain strength, hamstring and glute activation are super, super key. You're going to be using these for everything. So when you're that deep hip flexion, the only thing that's going to get you out of that is strong glutes, right? That's the only, only thing that's going to get you out of that. Those are the biggest muscles per um, body size at that area. So that's the only way that you're going to be getting out of these heavy positions. So those would be my two biggest in terms of when you're looking at like the lower body, really how this affects all positions, no matter what you're getting in. But then the other thing we definitely need to consider is a strong shoulder girdle so scapular rotator cuff and i'll even throw lats in there because if you're lifting i mean there's when you're doing uh a heavy clean you're doing a deadlift 
So the only way that that bar is going to look pretty when you're moving is to have your lats locked in exactly like you would be if you're pulling a sumo deadlift, if you're pulling conventional deadlift, if you're doing snatch grip deadlift, right? No matter what you're doing, you have to have that part of your body stable because that's also going to influence our posterior chain position, right? We know this with that posterior oblique sling. If your lat is not firing properly, you're not going to get the contralateral glute to fire properly. This whole fascial chain that we talk about in physical therapy is there. I mean, you just can't get away from it. It's why you do a bird dog, right? It's like you're using one glute, the other arm. So it's like you're focusing on these imbalances, this asymmetrical kind of rotation there. So those are the biggest things that I would focus on. I like how you mentioned the uh, sling serape systems there too, because when we think of anatomy, especially from a strength training standpoint, because that's where a lot of people get their starts in the gym. You know, most people don't go in and start doing a snatch day one. They'll start with, you know, the bench, the curl, the skull crushers, the 50 pound dumbbell shrugs, because they were on the top rack, whatever it might be. And you know, we think about muscles as independent things like, oh, you know, here's where my trap is. When I do this, the trap functions and activates that sort of thing. We don't look at the whole system. We don't think of how the muscles connect with one another and intertwine with one another and how, you know, one thing being too tight or too weak can really disrupt the whole movement chain. I totally could not agree more, man. Like, uh, so right now, there's a guy at my clinic who's a PTA that I love working with. He is big into research, and he was actually uh, doing some uh, PRI courses mm-hmm. and really looking at kind of pelvic position. And one thing that we've been doing a lot with our runners lately is actually working on – the way we've been working on posterior chain strength is actually building – uh, co-contraction between the calf and the hamstrings. So when you're running, you never run like stiff-legged, right? Even if you hit with a heel strike, even if you're not a four-foot runner and you're a he- and then you're a rear foot uh, foot striker, you're still going to get some a little bit of knee flexion, right? So naturally, to pull yourself forward, you're not trying to use your quads. You're trying to use your posterior chain. So that would be calf to then get your heel off, and then also a hip extension, which is going to be glute, but then also hamstring. So that's why you people are starting to appreciate more that if you have a calf injury or an ankle injury, we shouldn't just be treating your calf, right? We should be looking at the whole system there, just that um, regional interdependence. So uh, shout out Mike Lair for that one <laughs> in school. Super, super important though, because if people do miss the ball on that, I mean, you're going to see a lot of people that y- you think, oh, it's just a knee issue. It might not be a knee issue at all. Again, like I'm looking at myself and saying, why do I have hip pain? I think I did something with my hip when, duh, you had ankle sprains like crazy on the same side. Why would you not think to look there, right? I've never had a hip injury. So while I've had ankle injuries, why not look there where there actually was an injury? Yep. It's, uh, it's interesting you bring that up because I just thought of um, someone who was actually on the show a few weeks ago, Megan uh, McAvoy. Uh, she's going in for uh, hip labral uh, tear uh, surgery tomorrow. Um, well, tomorrow when we're recording this here on Sunday, uh, the 24th of January. Um, but she had a lot of issues with her ankles because she was a ice skater, figure skater. And wouldn't you know, many years down the line, that led to issues at the hip that, you know, she didn't think about, you know, didn't catch at the time. And it's so easy to miss these things. And most people will. 
And, you know, if you're listening, here's your little, you know, two cent takeaway. Like, don't just settle for, you know, it hurts. I'll just pop some ibuprofen and move on. (laughs) Yep. Couldn't agree more, man. I know we could go off on that topic on a separate note at some point, but um, getting back to Olympic lifting, because as you know uh, from listening, I have a tendency to go off track sometimes. (laughs) Um, If people wanted to kind of progress into Olympic lift, so say we've got them, okay, I want to try a clean, I want to try an overhead squat, whatever it might be. How do we get them from wherever they are right now to that point where they can do those exercises? What would be like a general progression that they could work through, so to speak? All right, so I'll break it down and pretty much just start from, say someone comes to my gym and they're like, hey, I want to do that, what that guy's doing right over there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm a novice. I haven't even squatted. So basically I would look at it by the positions that are required for these things. So let's just start with, no matter what, if it's a snatch or clean, think about that bottom position, right? So it's a deadlift position. So I'm going to look to see how this person's deadlift is. If their deadlift isn't so good, if they cannot keep a neutral spine position while being in this hip extension, this proper posterior weight shift, then load up the posterior chain, I'm not going to definitely obviously start with some cleans. I'm going to work with a body weight hip hinge. Uh, we're going to work on some deadlifting. It might not even be with a barbell. It might be with a kettlebell just to build up some stability and proprioceptive awareness for these positions, right? That's something that gets, I know, you know, it's a fancy term that people like to think that's so fancy, but it's really not. It's just your ability to know where your body is in space and be able to use your body, right? So it's so funny when you see people that are natural athletes that you might not think are a natural athlete because you show them something and they do it right the first time. You're like amazed, like, man, am I so good? Or is this person like just natural? And that's where that comes from is I think there's this huge nervous system um, part of the body that we don't really get to appreciate a lot until you see that until, you know, you're someone like us who as a clinician myself and a future clinician with you. And as you work with clients, you're like, man, this person, I don't have to tell, give them any cues. There's some patients that just will never get it unless they do it a hundred times. Right. There's all different types of those. So I definitely would start there, right? That deadlift that's foundational. Then after the deadlift, before we even work on the clean portion, I want to see how someone does in a squat. That's the next thing. If a person cannot do a bodyweight squat, there's no way I'm going to transition them to a clean or at least not a full clean. They might, I might allow them to do a power clean, say their deadlift looks good, but their squat is sloppy, right? Because they just don't have that really, really deep hip flexion mobility because of maybe whether it's hip flexion, maybe it's they've had knee issues, maybe they have ankle issues, just like we were saying earlier. I'm definitely going to work with a power clean. So making them stop above parallel in a position that's maybe more comfortable, more tolerable, just to at least do the movement. So those would be the two things that I would go at first for for anybody no matter what level they're at just because i want to assess those those are going to be key and foundational now the one thing i will back up and say though about the deadlifts is is i'm not sure if you're like completely uh aware of this dan to yourself is that the deadlift for clean actually should be a little bit different biomechanically than really what we think of for a conventional deadlift so if someone's a big power lifter that's lifting to this and you're like oh i want to try cleans i would not advise doing your normal setup for a deadlift because typically with a deadlift position for conventional deadlifting like powerlifting you're definitely going to be sitting with a little bit less knee flexion Mm -hmm. so you're usually a little bit more tabletop on your back 
just based on the position, you know, you're a little bit, you still want to maintain that neutral spine when we are doing an Olympic lift start position, but you're actually going to be more in a squat position. Now, the reason why that is, is it just has to do with the bar path. So that bar path needs to be able to stay close to the body. And of course we want to maintain that as well when we deadlift, but it's because of the transition. So people, what they don't realize is once you're going from the start position, so the deadlift into whether it be the snatch, so the catching position, the overhead squat or the, or the front squat position for a clean is that there's a point in time where you're actually like losing contact with the bar. So you need to keep that bar close. So if that bar is really far away from you because of the way that your hip position is, and you're not being able to sit back into a deep squat enough, you're actually going to, the bar is going to miss where it's supposed to land. So it might not land directly overhead. If you're doing a snatch, for example, it might be in front of you, or it even might be behind you. And same thing would happen with the clean. You might get it. And there's times where I've, gotten a cleanup hit like right in the jugular felt like it's like almost knocks you out it's like oh <laughs> well, and there's times where you catch it low and you're really trying to scoop your arms up underneath and using more of your hands than landing it in the front rack position so there's definitely things to toy with with there right and i think that whole concept in itself is kind of new to people like okay i'm gonna lift the bar and i'm gonna lift it up here and then they learn that they have to actually throw the bar and release it and catch it and it's just a whole new concept like okay i'm going to lift it but i'm going to lift it by not lifting it and then lift it again and um i think that piece at least um for someone like myself is the hardest um piece to kind of work on because you're so used to doing the other thing you have to unlearn one skill or i guess relearn how to do one skill differently for lack of a better term yeah i would say this is something i definitely want to touch on uh a little bit later but i think it's more appropriate to do so now is when you're thinking about how the movement works um again whether it's the clean or the snatch is you're basically doing a jump that's Mm -hmm what you're doing here except the bar is keeping you basically in touch with the ground and if you look again like look through hook grips you can they'll do a slow-mo when you see their position they're getting to what's called triple extension so that's exactly what you do if you want to work on your vertical right so you're getting into that dorsiflexion knee flexion hip flexion position and then going to triple extension so plantar flexion knee extension and hip extension because that's what's generating the more most force in that vertical plane which is what you're trying to do when moving that bar Right. That makes sense. And um, you saying triple extension. Um, I actually just did a whole Con Ed course through uh, the Brookbush Institute on triple extension. So, I mean, for the most part here, we're talking about those squat and lunge type positions. Stand up out of a squat. Stand up out of a lunge. And if you can do those kind of things, that's the triple extension that we're talking about here. Um, now, you made an interesting point there too with the uh, Olympic lift being kind of like a jump, so to speak, with the clean. Now, I've seen people do their cleans and some people do have like a little hop, so to speak, when they lift. And some people keep their feet pretty stagnant and stationary. Uh, Is there a reason for that difference or does it depend on training goal or... Some of it we'll do with a little bit of both. So let me talk more about the training goals. So some people will try to keep their feet more stagnant. So what they're trying to do is build actually more upper body power. So if you have an athlete that 
knows, again, knows your weaknesses and your strengths. Well, we talked about our Motivation Monday podcast. They know they got tree trunk legs, right? They're moving anything and everything that has to do with their legs, but their upper body, especially more of like that shrug position that you're getting to when you're moving that bar from that hip position or that second pull up through the top, those people are going to be doing what they call no feet cleans or no feet snatches. So they're basically limiting the amount of force they're going to generate with their lower body and maxing the amount of force they use with their upper body. So that can be one. So that's sometimes you'll see based on, again, what a coach is programming for his or her athlete. Um, and then the other thing you'll see is could be just the coaching philosophy itself. So there are some people that uh, really find it important for as a cue to it almost sounds like someone slamming their feet. So as soon as they pull the bar, they should catch the same time that their feet hit the ground. So sometimes a coach will want uh, to teach a younger athlete, maybe less experienced for that audible feedback. So they catch the bar and the feet hit the ground versus their feet shouldn't hit the ground. You hear it and then feel the bar hit on the front rack or land in the in the snatch position in the overhead. So that's sometimes how those will play into, into the effect. I like those cues. Um, I'm always looking for some kind of form cue like that, um, whether it's, you know, click the bar before you deadlift or spread the floor with your feet. I find those are very helpful, not just from a personal standpoint, but for coaching someone else who might be unfamiliar with the movement and just trying to get them to uh, make sense of it from a uh, movement standpoint. Now, with a training goal in mind, so we've got the exercises, we've got our progression, how are we gonna program them from a set, rep, rest period kind of thing? What are we really looking at here with these exercises? So I'd say if you get someone to the point where you feel comfortable taking them through uh, sets of Olympic lifts, typically, well, you'll see just because of the physical demand and capacity that these uh, movements require from the body in terms of like a nervous system input as well, uh, you really want to limit your reps. It's probably usually to start, especially between like three to five reps per set. And you can even go less than that. And there's no, no shame in that because you're really, again, wanting to work on form, work on technique. Don't want it to be sloppy. It's super, super important. But then between those sets, you want to definitely work for about four to five minutes because these movements are supposed to be explosive. They're supposed to be powerful. So you really do want a lot of time in between sets. Again, when you're working on these and putting them in through a strength component. Now, when it comes to how these movements get utilized with CrossFit, of course, that's not always the case, right? Like there's the workout that's grace, which is you do 30 clean and jerks per time. So you're taking the bar from the ground, you get into the front rack and you're putting the bar overhead. So you're doing that 30 times at either 135 for men, 95 for ladies. So there's going to be some form breakdown there, right? Like it's just what kind of what we expect. It's, but as long as we're able to maintain the specific things, in check, right? What we talked about earlier, our core, that's the most important thing. We don't want to hurt our back. That's like the number one, right? It's like, we got a shoulder problem. Might not be, we don't want that, but it's probably going to be a little bit easier to take care of a manage than a back problem. So thinking about how those things come into play. But then early on with someone that I maybe feel comfortable, again, doing some things with, but maybe not doing like lots of reps, lots of sets, just because the form just isn't looking the way I want it to. I'm going to work on like a, a snatch grip deadlift position. So engaging the lats in that certain, in that position with the wider grip. That's where I'll start with someone, especially with a snatch or even a clean. So I'll work on changing up their form. They might have a great looking deadlift, but then a sloppy looking clean deadlift or a snatch grip deadlift. So that's another thing I'll do. Another thing that I think is really, really important. And this is something that does get 
in my personal opinion, underutilized in um, coaching for Olympic lifts is a clean or snatch pull. So trying to teach this person when to move the bar from a transition of you have high stability when the bar is in contact with the ground and then you're bringing it up to your hip and now there's less stability in that transitional phase from the bar at your waist to either overhead or on the front rack in the front squat. So I think a clean or snatch pull is really, really important because there are two types of pulls when you're doing um, a clean or snatch. So it's called the first pull, which is when the bar starts at the ground and it goes to about the knee. So that one, it should just have to, it has to do with the mechanics of the movement. So you really want to still be in the normal deadlift position, but then as you go from the second pull, that should actually be the more aggressive or the quicker pull of the two is from your knee to that final position, which is usually around your hip crease. And that one, you want your chest to actually rise up more. So you're a little bit more vertical and then you're getting into more, getting close to that hip extension and going through there. So that's why I like to use a clean pull. Cause I think it starts to teach athletes. Okay. You're jumping, but with this bar or with a lightweight, right? You're teaching them to go through this motion, break it down, make it a little bit more simple. So that's what I would definitely do. And then if you're looking at someone that they, you want to teach them to snatch, right? You feel comfortable with them power snatching, but they still lack this mobility. I'm just going to make them overhead squat. I mean, it's just, just again, it's, it, I think sometimes we try to overcomplicate things. Keep it simple. If someone sucks at overhead squatting, make them overhead squat. That's the only <laughs> way they're going to get better. Just like do the movement, right? It's like you can still work on those mobility things, but at the end of the day, if someone can't transition to an overhead squat um, in a snatch because they suck at it, work on that. It's inherently going to get that better. There's also a few movements that I would like to go over for a snatch, which is also a snatch balance. So what that would look like is the bar typically starts on the back. You're going to have a snatch grip position to start. And what you'll do is you'll do a small dip and then a drive through triple extension. And as you're moving the bar overhead, you're dropping into an overhead squat. So it's working on the catch position basically. So trying to work on that balance and coordination and timing of things. Those are some more specific um, techniques to work on when I'm taking someone through, okay, maybe they're struggling here, maybe they're struggling there. Those are the things I'm going to be highlighting with my athletes. That makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, you say the term athletes for CrossFitters, obviously, but this is something or movements that everyone should be doing, not just CrossFitters. If you want to improve your strength, your power, your explosiveness, any real, you know, component of athletics or life in general, these are some of the best lifts to do that with. And they're using movement patterns that everyone should hopefully be good at. And if not, here's your time to get good at them. So um, I really like just the sounds and everything that we've talked about with these exercises so far. And I'm hoping that it motivates some people to give them a go uh, when they're ready, because I know that I, for one, once I fix a few of the uh, imbalances that I've got going on, will be kind of getting into this from a uh, slow start progression, you know, something like a dumbbell snatch or a hang clean and building up from there. <clears throat> I definitely couldn't agree more, man. The, the hang clean, let me just hit one last point there. As yep. you said there, the hang clean is another great way that I would start off to for those that are listening that want to start. Be, and the reason why is it takes some of the issues out that they might be having. So again, if this person can't necessarily get that first to second pull, 
this is how I was. I remember when I was a young athlete and working on these, my hand clean, I could almost hand clean as much as I could clean from the floor, which should not be because your hip has a lot more range when you're in that bottom squat. So you're building up a lot more power when you're down a little bit lower. So what I was struggling with was, again, transferring and going through the movements. So sometimes that can also help your athletes out and or people that just want to work on these movements because it's taking a little bit of peace out that maybe is having trouble in their brain to transition and process. And they're going to see like a huge improvement. They're like, wow, I can actually do this and feel what that feels like. So that's one way you can get people to get the next step where they feel like they might be struggling. Interesting. No, thank you. <laughs> You're uh, no dropping some major uh, knowledge bombs here today. We, uh, we love it. Good stuff. So with that, Dakota, thank you again for your time and for joining us on the show. Uh, for those of you listening, if you have questions or comments or um, maybe a complaint, um, send it to Dakota. You can find him on Instagram. I'll link his uh, Instagram username below in the uh, notes and the details. And I'll also show you his uh, LinkedIn profile and all that sort of thing. So feel free to reach out to him with any questions or uh, anything of that sort. Dakota, thanks again. Hey, thanks, Dan. It's been a great time, and I hope we can do this again sometime. <laughs>